Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter number 1 this morning. John, chapter number 1. Man, what a blessing to get to be in the house of God. Amen. And I want to say a personal thank you to all those ladies that went out to the uh, Christmas cookie exchange. Amen. My wife came home with a bounty of cookies, and uh, every one of them was delicious. And I know that because I ate every one of them. John chapter number one this morning, and uh, let me thank our visitors for being here. What a blessing to have you here. We know you probably drove past half a dozen churches to get here. It's not lost on us, and it's a blessing to have you here with us today. John chapter number one, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. The Gospel of John chapter number one, verse number one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This is He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. We'll stop and pray there. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for sending your Son to Calvary. Lord, thank you before ever sending him to Calvary that you sent him to this earth, to walk in perfection amongst man, to show us what righteousness looked like, to show us who you are. Lord, I pray that you'd help us today as we approach your word, to approach it with the right spirit and the right attitude. Lord, not one merely of academic speculation, but Lord, let us slide our feet up under the table of God's word. And may we feast to the filling of our soul. May you do a work in us that would be eternal, Lord, and that would be monumental. And may we, as we hear your word and receive it this morning, may we be drawn closer unto thee. Lord, if there's one that is lost, that wouldn't be a surprise in a group this large. I pray that you'd show them their lost condition. Lord, I didn't know I was lost till you showed me I was lost. I pray you'd show them, Lord, if they are. And I pray that before they'd leave this place, they'd call upon Christ, be born again. He's our only hope, Lord, but he's enough. He's sufficient. Lord, I pray that you would... Show them that need and that they would believe on Christ. Lord, I love you and I thank you for loving me. Thank you for being such a precious God. Help me to be a faithful servant today. Lord, I love you and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
Last Sunday morning, we began preaching on the topic of the incarnation. Now, that word incarnation is a big $10 theologian's word, but really it is described for us succinctly in uh, the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah would prophesy about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is how the Word of God describes it. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the New Testament, we're told what that name Emmanuel means. It means God with us. We are at the Christmas season right now, in case you were unaware, in case it was lost on you somehow. And when you think about the Christmas season, all the trappings and all of the various events and all of the festivities of it, I think there's a great danger in losing sight of the magnitude of what it is that we're celebrating. I think it's easy to look at that manger and just see a baby and forget that he's God. I think it's easy to read the Christmas story and find in it simply a beautiful story about a birth and a young, sweet family and miss that in that moment, the greatest event short of Calvary in human history that had ever or would ever transpire took place. For the God of all glory, the God that created all things, the God whose hand, the span of which was used to measure the universe, was contracted down to the span of a virgin's womb and was birthed into time and into humanity to walk in perfection amongst mankind. It cannot be overstated what an incredible event it was that transpired that night in Bethlehem. If I was to give a definition to the incarnation, if I was just to describe it and give you a clinical description of it, I'd probably describe it this way. The eternally existent second person of the triune Godhead indwelt the sinless body that was prepared for Him by the conception of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. He was born in Bethlehem in the land of Israel, and lived a perfect, sinless life. He is a hundred percent God, as He has always and eternally been. And due to this miraculous entrance into time and humanity, He is also a hundred percent man. This event and ongoing reality constitutes the truth of the Incarnation. It's not just merely what He did, but it's who He is. You couldn't be saved if it wasn't for the Incarnation. You wouldn't have a high priest in heaven if it wasn't for the Incarnation. You couldn't have a relationship with God if it wasn't for the Incarnation. When we speak of this truth, we could say three things about it. Number one, I'd say this morning, the Incarnation is a truth of historical fact. It is no true historian that would seek to dispute the reality of the birth of Jesus Christ. You may want to argue whether He did all the things the Bible says He did. You may want to argue whether He was who He said He was. And I think there is evidence abundant beyond heaping, pouring over that He did what He did and that He is who He said He is. But one thing that no self-respecting historian would seek to dispute is the reality of the birth of Jesus Christ. 
that he was a real human individual in the sense that he lived in a slice of time. He walked through this world. He is not a figment of the collective religious imagination. He's not an avatar for our religious aspirations. But he literally lived and walked in this world. It is a truth of historical fact. Number two, I'd say this. The incarnation is a truth of theological force. Say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, what you believe about the incarnation is going to change and dictate what you believe about everything else. A man cannot be saved without believing in the incarnation. You can't be saved and reject the reality of the incarnation. And in fact, if you're wrong about this truth, if you were to believe, for instance, that it's merely a a myth, that it's merely a, a, a fable or a parable, then it would change everything about what Bible Christianity is. You can't believe He died if you don't believe He lived. You can't believe He rose from the dead if He didn't die. And if He didn't live, He couldn't have died and He couldn't have rose from the dead. And if you don't believe that He's rose from the dead, you cannot be saved and you cannot know God. This truth is paramount. It is a truth of theological force. But then I would say this, the incarnation is a truth of practical faith. This is not merely a a dusty precept that is cataloged away on some bookshelf of theological works. This is a living, breathing doctrine that informs and affects our day-to-day life. Hey, you say, preacher, why can we pray? Because He was incarnated. Why can my sins be forgiven? Because He was incarnated. Why can I cry, Abba, Father? Why can I have a relationship with God? Why can I even keep my sanity in this world? Because He was incarnate. And it's been my desire in these messages to show you not just this truth, as I'm sure many of you already have it theologically squared away, your I's are dotted, your T's are crossed, you know what you believe about it, and I trust you believe biblically about it, but to show us how it changes our life. Hey, listen, uh, Christmas changed everything. The incarnation changed everything. Until man in his pride and and self-worship sought to abolish what was an obvious reality, we even reckon time back to that moment and describe things as either before Christ or Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Only in the modern secular society of neo-paganism that we live in has man sought to gut that reality. We even set our clocks by this truth. And therefore, it has a meaningful impact on how we live our day-to-day life. Now, there's different ways we can view the incarnation. And I don't mean the facts surrounding it. I don't mean the reality of it. But when we ask this question, what was God doing when He sent His Son to this world? I would say to you that that is a multifaceted answer. There are several things, and it's interesting because over and over and over again in the Bible, the incarnation is presented to us as a truth. But in each of these instances, its function and its force is described in different ways. For instance, last Sunday morning we preached on the incarnation viewed as a solution to some things. You know the first time the incarnation is talked about in your Bible in Genesis 3.15. It is against the backdrop of man's fall. And it's viewed as a solution to three things. It's a solution to man's fall. Hey, man fell and he hid from God and he couldn't get to God. You know what God did? He came and walked amongst man. It's viewed as a solution to man's foe. We have an adversary, the devil, 
But I'm glad one, hey, hey, one day, I'm glad that the heel of the seed crushed the head of the serpent, aren't you? And then it's viewed as a solution to man's forgiveness. Even there in the garden, it's pointed towards when God wanted Adam and Eve to be able to stand before Him. He slew an animal and robed them in those bloody skins. And it is a picture of the Lamb of God whose righteousness only could provide us access to the Lord. So we could view it as a solution. First Timothy 3.16 describes the incarnation. It says this, uh, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And we talked last Sunday night about the incarnation as a demonstration of what righteousness looks like. Paul wrote to Timothy so that he might know how he ought to behave himself in the house of God. And then he points to Jesus and says, you want to know what righteous behavior looks like? Look to Jesus. He'll show you what righteousness looks like. But this morning as we have come to John chapter number 1, and maybe it's just the Grinch in me, but I'll tell you this is my favorite rendition of the Christmas story. All four of the Gospels tell the Christmas story. You didn't know that, did you? You thought it was just Luke 2 and, and Matthew 2. But did you know all four of them tell the story? They just tell it with a different perspective. And I love John chapter number 1 because it shows us the Christmas story as viewed from God's throne. And when I read this passage of Scripture, I'm struck with this thought. It presents the incarnation to us viewed as a revelation. In other words, God disclosing things to us that we could otherwise never know or understand. I love how it says it. The Word was made flesh. There are two titles that are given primarily to the Lord Jesus in this passage. And we'll spend a few moments this morning considering these. He is described both as the Word and as the light. You know, both of those things are revelatory elements. What does the Word do? Well, the Word takes that which lives in here and it puts it out there. It takes that which lives in here and it puts it out there. You know what Jesus is? He's the Word. He took the thoughts and intentions and ambitions and desires and priorities of God and manifest them for mankind to behold. And then you know what the light is. Hey, the Word takes what's inside and shows it outwardly. The light takes what's outside and shows it for what it is. We turn the light on. Why do we do that? So that we can see things for what they truly are. And here in this Christmas story, we have three sections in this passage. And I'm going to be honest with you. You may feel like you're in, in a college class or maybe an elementary school class would be a better way to say it this morning. This may feel like a schoolroom perspective. But I just want to walk you through this passage and I want to try to expound this truth and let's see how God informs our life by it. There are three sections to this passage. In the first five verses, we find a creation type. In verse 6 down to verse number 13, we find a convincing testimony. And in verse 14 down to verse 18, there is a collection of truths and what they mean to our life. Notice with me first this morning this creation type. He say, preacher, what do you mean by a creation type? Well, a type is a theological term for an Old Testament event, person, or reality that foreshadowed a New Testament truth. All throughout the Old Testament, there are what we call types, shadows 
pictures. For instance, Isaac being offered on Mount Moriah is a type of the Lamb of God being offered for you and for I. Adam partaking of the fruit knowingly, willfully, so that he might be able to protect, have fellowship with, and redeem his bride is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ partaking in sin that he might redeem his bride, the church, unto himself. And over and over again, we could look in the Old Testament at these various types and shadows and pictures. And John, he loved this word beginning. You'll find it a lot in the things that John wrote in the Word of God. You say, preacher, where should we begin? Well, let's begin at the beginning. And John begins at the beginning. But by the beginning, I don't just mean the beginning of the life, earthly life of Jesus Christ. I don't even just mean the beginning of humanity or even the beginning of creation. For John draws us back into a time that apart from the Word of God, we could have no glimpse into because no man has ever been within that realm to experience it. He pulls us back to the beginning of the beginning. And he shows us something about who God is and who Christ is. Notice there are three things in this type. He begins to describe the creation of this world. And most particularly, he describes how that light was spoken into existence. You remember the two titles the Lord's going to be given in this. It's the Word and the light. He's going to deal with how that light was spoken into the existence of a dark Universe, And notice what he says. He begins before the beginning by saying this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He begins by talking about Jesus Christ and His relation to the world. Now, lest you think I'm just telling tales out of school, we're told down in verse 14 who the Word is. The Word was made flesh and we dwelt, and, and He dwelt amongst us. And it says we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father. So there's no dispute who we're talking about when we talk about the Word. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And do you know that the three fundamental qualities or traits of the Godhead are described here. Notice it with me. What does he want us to know about who Jesus is in relation to the world? Well, notice, number one, the Bible says this, in the beginning was the Word. wants to be reminded that the every person of the Godhead is co-eternal. In other words, he's not a created being. There wasn't a time when he wasn't and then a time when he was, but he has forever and always been. By the way, this is something the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons get incorrect. Uh, amongst many things, amen, is they believe Jesus Christ to be a created being. There are many things that make the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons a cult. But preeminent amongst all of them is this erroneous belief about Jesus Christ. They believe there was a time He didn't exist, that He is a created being of a higher order than you or I, they would say, but a created being nonetheless. This is completely contrary to the clear-cut teaching of the Word of God. In the beginning, when there was nothing but God, there was the Word. He is co-eternal. Not only that, He says this, in the beginning was the Word. Then He says the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, he'll go on to say this in verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. And that's an interesting description. Why does John say twice 
that the Word was with God because He's describing it in two different perspectives. Here in a moment, He's going to describe it as existing in verse number 2. We'll say a word about it when we get to it. But what He is saying in verse number 1 when He said the Word was with God is He's saying it is of the same characteristic, of the same caliber, and of the same quality of God. The Bible says this, uh, Paul would tell us later on in Philippians chapter number 2, uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in, uh, in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, John describes him not only as co-eternal, but as co-equal. There is no hierarchy in the Godhead. We describe it in terms of the first, second, and third person of the Trinity. We describe it in terms of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But make no mistake, the the, the Son of God is just as much God as the Sovereign God, as the Spirit of God. The Son is as much God as the Father, and the Spirit is as much God as both of them. They are co-equal. Word was with God, and then, lest we, lest we just find a little wiggle room to get our heresy in there, the Holy Ghost just stomps it right out. He just says it right out plain. The Word was God. He's not just the Son of God, He's God the Son. He is not only co-eternal and co-equal, but as we mentioned a moment ago, verse 2, He's co-existent. He says the same, the same who? This same Word. Who is this Word? He'll describe Him in verse 14. But Jesus Christ, the same Word, was in the beginning with God. In other words, there's never been a time when the Father existed that the Son did not exist. i got to be careful. I'll get bogged down. We'll find ourselves digging our way out of China. We'll be digging so deep. But suffice it to say that when the Bible describes the Godhead as Father and as Son, it is trying to communicate God is to us something about the the hierarchy of authority that exists within it. But it's not suggesting that everything about the Son is the same as the way that I am with my Father. Say, How do you know that, preacher? Because I didn't exist before my daddy existed. Because I couldn't exist. I've not lived as long as he lived. By the way, it's his birthday. You ask him today how long he's lived, all right? But the Son has always existed just as the Father has always existed. So he begins by describing his relation to the world. Number two, he describes his interaction with the world. It says in verse number three, all things were made by him. Now this is of course in keeping with the rest of the Word of God. Colossians chapter number 1 tells us that He created all things. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter number 11 that we, uh, by faith we know that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Over and over again we're told that Jesus Christ had an active part in the creative process of this world. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. There's no corner of creation that He had no part in. And then he says this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And here's what I want you to understand. Here is the co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal Godhead. Here is Jesus Christ as much God as God the Father, eternally existent in all times, uh, eternally existent in all perspectives. And then all of the sudden, he creates, God is outside of time, But He creates time and a world in which that time to operate. In the creative act, we have the first interaction of God with this world. And what was that interaction? Well, notice two things. We see His interaction in creating material. 
He created. He touched and formed this world. And He did so, the Father did, by the Word that was spoken. You remember how He created all things, right? He spoke. He said, let there be, let there be, let there be. Well, why did His let there be have more force than my let there be? I said over and over again this year, let there be a Tennessee football championship. But it ain't going to happen. When I saw it wasn't going to happen, I said, well, let there be an LSU one, but it ain't going to happen. Let there be, let there be. Let, there's people, hey, there's people still in Mobile and Birmingham still saying, let there be an Alabama national championship. But it ain't going to happen either, amen. Let there be, let there be. The Word spoke creation into existence. In this, we have a foreshadowing of what would happen when once again the Creator in Bethlehem would step into time and humanity and interact with the world that He had created. Not only in creating material, but listen, in quickening mankind. I want to be very careful with how I describe this. And let me just go ahead and make a disclaimer statement. I'm not a universalist. I don't believe all men are going to heaven. I believe as many as received Him to them gave you power to become the sons of God. But when it describes Him as being the light of men, He's describing mankind's capacity to come to God and to know God. You know, mankind is unique. We are not a higher order of animals. We are wholly separate and distinct from all else of creation because we are created in the image of God. I hope you love your puppy dog, but your puppy dog ain't created in the image of God. I hope you love your kitty cat. I love cats. I do. I love them. I love them teriyaki. I love them general sows. I, I love them every which way you can fix them. But that kitty cat ain't created in the image of God. Man is proprietary in his identity and relation to God. The Bible says this in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In other words, the thing that gave mankind the capacity to come to God and know God was His proprietary life that was breathed into mankind. You remember, mankind was given life in a unique way from every other aspect of creation. All the rest of creation was spoken into existence, and there was where it ended. But mankind was formed to the dust of the ground, and then God breathed in him the breath of life, thereby giving man a soul and a spirit and a capacity to interact with God. So stop and think about it for a moment. Here is the eternal, co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal God. He has always existed. He creates mankind. He creates creation. He enters into time and humanity and then breathes life into mankind. We see His interaction with the world. But then, all of a sudden, having invoked this concept of light in verse 4, John expands on it in verse 5. He says this, "...and the light shineth in darkness." And the darkness comprehended it not. The word was spoken. The light shined forth. And in doing so, it did two things. Notice number one, the darkness retreats before the light. The light shineth in darkness. Now, isn't that what happened in creation? The Bible says that darkness covered the face of the deep. But then God spoke and said, let there be light. By the way, this is going to mess a lot of uh, of, uh, astrophysicists up. But you know there was light before there was a sun. There was light before there were stars. Uh, Before there was ever any of that, before God had flung any of that into the world, He said, let there be light. And what was that light? That light was His person. That light was His power and His personality. 
And when he spoke, the darkness retreated. It recoiled from the light. You know why that is? Let me say it this way. The darkness not only retreats before the light, but the darkness rejects the light. I don't want to get too obtuse or abstract this morning, but you know, light and darkness don't exist in the same realm. Where light is, darkness must flee. And in fact, it could be rightly said that darkness definitionally is the absence of light. Darkness is not substance, but it's where light is not. Anywhere where light is received and accepted, the darkness must flee. It shatters the night. But if the darkness refuses, rejects, if it moves itself beyond the reach of the light, then it will continue. There will be no intermingling of the two. There will just be the one or the other. Now you say, preacher, that's interesting. I enjoyed that trip back to Sunday school and learning about creation. But what does that have to do with the incarnation? That has everything to do with the incarnation. Because the way that God created this world and the way this world reacted to the presence of light and to the creative power of God foreshadowed exactly what happened on that night in Bethlehem when God once again entered into, when the eternal, co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal God, when the thrice holy God of the universe, the, the God that created all things and without Him was nothing made that, that was made. In other words, all material. And you know that's what things are in this world is just us pushing molecules around. Where'd the molecules come from? He created them all. He created every bit of them, every single one of them. The whole reason they exist is because they were spoken into existence. When that God walked into time and humanity, the world reacted the same way then that the darkness reacted whenever He created all things. We find here there is a creation type. It points to the incarnation. But then notice there's a convincing testimony beginning in verse number 6. John's had us at the beginning. But now he draws us to Bethlehem. And he wants to remind us of some things that took place. Verse 6, he says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light. Who's the light? The light is Jesus Christ. That all men through him might believe. He, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, what about that light? Well, that was the true light. Not just the, the, the atmospheric light, but what the atmospheric light is a picture of. That was the true light, Jesus Christ, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, talking about his earthly life. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. You'd think, by the way, you'd think God creating all things, all of creation, you'd think there'd be no place that would reject the light, wouldn't you? But that's not the case. He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. The darkness still wouldn't be intermingled with light. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John says, here's this picture in the Old Testament that God gave us when He created all things. It it was a picture of what He one day would do when He would robe Himself in flesh and walk amongst mankind. And now, looking to Jesus Christ, and by the way, you remember why John's Gospel was written. It was written that lost men might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so, you know, we talk about the book of Romans being a courtroom scene, but in many ways the book of John is a courtroom scene because he pulls the lost man into the courtroom and shows him all the evidence of why Christ is who he said he was. And in that vein of thinking, he invokes three elements, three areas of the life of Christ to point to as proof that he in fact is the word, the expression of the heart and mind of God. The first thing he points to is the voice in the wilderness. He tells the story of another man named John. It's not the gospel of John's writer, but it's a man by the name of John the Baptist. Now remember who John the Baptist is representative of, at least at this moment in time. He's representative of the prophets. He was the prophet of Israel in that day. And other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the term prophet used in a more generic sense, John was the last of the prophets. Christ spoke about John and said that they had slain all of the prophets from the days of Zechariah down to the days of John the Baptist. He is heralded as the very last prophet before the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah describes him in these terms, says that he was as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, prepare ye the way before him. And Jesus pointed to John and used that same language when John was in prison. He said, this is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So John is a picture of all the prophecies that have been given all throughout human history. What did he say about Jesus? Well, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Did he do that? Well, he did. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Later on, it describes how that John bare witness of him, verse 15, and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. The preacher, how do you know that Jesus is who he says he is? Because he fulfilled every prophecy there ever was about him. Not only in the sense of this creative type that John is invoking earlier in this chapter, but every single prophecy that was given, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled every single one of them. Statisticians would tell you the uh, unimaginable improbability that it would be for one man to fulfill one of those prophecies. And yet Jesus Christ fulfilled all of them. The book of Hebrews tells us that this would be one of the messianic proofs and testimonies Uh, The psalmist prophetically said about him, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that Christ looked at the Pharisees. He said, uh, to search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. When we look at this scene in Bethlehem, we are immediately struck and arrested by the dizzying array of prophecies that are being fulfilled from the manner of his birth to the place of his birth uh, to the spectators of his birth to the timing of his birth. All of these to the star that shone in heaven over his birth. All of these things remind us that he is exactly who he said that he was. And John, the gospel writer, points back to John the Baptist and merely says God had sent a voice ahead of him to tell us that he is who he said he was. By the way, in many ways, John's representative, and I know Jesus is the word, but John is representative of the Old Testament witness of Scripture. And all of the word of God pointed to a Messiah that would come. You say, preacher, how do you know he is who he says he is? Because he lines up with everything my Bible said he was supposed to be. We see the voice in the world, but then there's a second uh, convincing testimony, and that's the light of the world. Uh, verse number nine says this: "That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world." 
Now, that's an interesting phrase. Again, the universalists would point to that and say, well, there you have it, preacher. It says that he lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Well, let's use it. In, let's use the Bible as its own commentary. Uh, remember how John used that terminology earlier when, by the way, no theologian could suggest that at the point of creation uh, that Adam was born again or experienced the new birth. Uh, but rather it's saying that it quickened him in the sense of giving him the capacity to come to God and to know God in a way that animals and, and lesser elements of creation cannot know God. And so John's using that terminology in the same respect here. He's not using it explicitly, but categorically. Paul would use this language later on. He'd say it this way about Jesus Christ. He's the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. That's how Paul described it in the pastoral epistles. He's the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. Does that mean all, mean all men are saved? No, it means if any man's going to get saved, he's going to have to come to Jesus to get saved. He is the only Savior, all right? It, 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 listen, it is Christmas Day, 8.30 at night, every, even the Walmart's closed. The only salvation booth open is His. You can't go nowhere else. He is the Savior of all men. If a man's going to get saved, he's going to get saved through Jesus Christ. If he won't come to Jesus Christ, he just won't get saved. He's the Savior of all men, meaning Jew and Gentile, meaning rich and poor, meaning uh, slave and free, meaning uh, barbarian or Scythian. Uh, Anybody, if they're going to get saved, they're going to have to come to Him. He lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He's the only one. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world just as light was spoken into this world. He was in the world and the world was made by Him. You would think that light would shine everywhere. But the Bible says the world knew Him not. The Bible tells us that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Mankind is nascently dark within his soul. God seeks to shine a light both exposing and then alleviating that darkness. But mankind, if they won't come to Him, if they in their darkness retreat from His grasp, there will be no intermingling of light and darkness. If you receive the light, it will scatter the darkness. But that's not what the world did. When light was spoken into this world, hey, listen, it didn't bring everybody together. It brought a sword. It kindled a fire. It didn't join everybody together. It separated everybody. Because now all of a sudden mankind had exposed to them their lost condition. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. Well, what about his own? Well, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Now, if, if, there's, if, there's, any, if there's any analog to this in the creation story, it would surely have to be Adam and Eve who were created and given the opportunity to obey God and know God. And you'd think if anybody would have, they would have. But instead, they chose to disobey the Lord. In other words, John says, if you want to know he's who he says he is, he is a perfect match for the picture that God painted in the Old Testament. But then he gives an even more explicit testimony. He says in this, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born (coughs) not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We see the voice in the wilderness. We see that Jesus is the light of the world. But then we see this. He is the Savior of the willing. Say, preacher, how do I know that God walked amongst 
mankind. How do I know that he robed himself in flesh? How do I know that he died on the cross of Calvary? I can tell you how. I can tell you how. On December 1st, 1997, a little 10-year-old boy believed what the Bible had said about him and believed what the Bible had said about God and about Christ and came to Lord Jesus Christ and was willing to receive Him. I, I wasn't special. I hadn't done anything notable. I, I, there was nothing redeemable seemingly about me, nothing spectacular about me. But I'll tell you what I was. I was willing. I received Him. And when I received Him, do you know what He did? He gave me power to become a son of God. And there was a transformation that took place in my life. No longer a child of hell. But now in His image I did shine. Not only could I tell you that, but I know a few others that could tell you the exact same thing. The preacher, how do you know that God walked amongst mankind? Because behind Him He left in His way transformed lives that had come to Christ and believed on Him. And I know it had to be God. You know why? Because verse 13 reminds us that they were not born of blood. In other words, it was not merely they had the right blood within them, and that's why they were sons of God. You see, our blood is, is tainted, corrupt, filthy, depraved, guilty, condemned, and corrupted. No, no, no. It wasn't, they weren't born of blood. It wasn't, it wasn't their pedigree. Nor of the will of the flesh. They didn't just want to know God. I didn't come to God because I had this craving to know God. I didn't even know I didn't have God till God told me I didn't have God. I didn't even know I needed God till He told me I needed God. It wasn't just nascently within me. It wasn't just intrinsically. It wasn't just dialed into my DNA to crave God. I didn't come to Him through the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. It wasn't through my self-determination, resolve, and resilience that I came to know Him. I didn't will myself into a right condition and relationship with God. So how did I get saved? Well, I was born of God. That's what it says, verse 13, which were born of God. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man. But what were they born of? Born of God. A supernatural, transformative, miraculous thing took place when I believed on Jesus Christ. You say, what what do you call it? Well, the old timers would say it this way. I got born again. Got born again. I'm so born again, it's past tense. I got born again. Born again, man. Got saved miraculously by the grace of God. How do you know, preacher, that God walked amongst flesh? How do you know it's not just a figment of the collective religious imagination? How do you know it's not just an avatar of the hopes and dreams of mankind and its despair? I can tell you how, because He saved my soul. I know that He walked amongst me. I know He is who He says He is. And I know He did what He said He did. Because He did in me what He promised He'd do. And He couldn't have done that if he hadn't have been who he says he is. There is in this passage a creation type. There is a convincing testimony. And then finally, in verse 14, he begins a collection of truths. So what does this all mean? What does it imply to us? Well, it informs us in three ways. Verse 14 says it this way. The word, in other words, the, the will, nature, heart, desires, ambitions... That's all things that the Word manifests in your life and in my life. You ever heard, heard somebody say, well, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind? You better be careful, man. You only got so many you can give away. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. What do we mean? I'm going to speak things to them that are living, thankfully, and dwelling only in here. I, I, you say, preacher, what are you most scared of in the in the degrading and breaking down of society? That one day they'll finally get the technology to read our mind. Or you talk about society burning down around us. 
if you all knew what you all think about each other, mm, I don't ever think anything bad about you, but if you all knew what you all think about each other, what does the Word do? It takes that which lives inwardly and expresses it outwardly. That which cannot be known, it cannot be deduced. I know old Sherlock Holmes makes it look like it's easy, but it, it cannot be deduced, it cannot be guessed at. This, by the way, is the nature of that term mystery in the Bible. This is the nature of a mystery in the Word of God, something that could not have been known, but had to be revealed and disclosed. Well, the ultimate mystery was God Himself. It has now been disclosed. How do we know that? Well, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What's this collection of truths? Well, the first is this, that he was robed in flesh. That he walked amongst mankind. John reminds us of two things. Number one, in doing this, you know what we learned about God? We learned his identity. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He'll later on tell us in verse 18 that no man had seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, or the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Mankind could try to guess at who God was, but we don't have to guess who God is. We can know who God is. And the reason we can know that is because the Word, the thoughts, the heart, the intent, the ambitions, the desires, the priorities of God have been expressed and manifested to us through the incarnation, through Jesus Christ walking amongst men. You say, preacher, I wonder what God would do. Well, what did Jesus do? Well, I wonder what God would think. Well, what did Jesus think? We can know what God thought. And we can know that through the testimony of Jesus Christ. We see His identity, but not only that, God's integrity is revealed. I like this last little phrase, full of grace and truth. Aren't those the two words that characterize the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ? Grace. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. The very incarnation was an act of grace. Uh, Paul would describe it this way to the church at Corinth, that, uh, that this is the grace of God, that though He was rich yet for your sakes became ye poor, that through his poverty ye might be made rich. The act of the incarnation was an act of grace. We didn't deserve him to come and walk amongst man. And he did not do it because man deserved it. He did not do it because man made good on his promises or his potential. But he did it because he loved humanity and desired for humanity to know him. The very act of the incarnation was an act of grace. But not only that, the testimony of his life was that of grace. Everywhere he went, what did he do? He went about, uh, Paul would describe it this way, he went about doing good, doing good. All throughout his earthly ministry, what did he do? He walked around and healed folks that didn't deserve to be healed, helped folks that didn't deserve to be helped, uh, saved folks that didn't deserve to be saved. There's never a single person, not a, not a single miracle that Christ ever did was deserved. Just like not a single person that ever got saved has deserved it. Grace. And then that second word, truth. Truth. His was a life of truth. Not just truth in a practical sense, but truth as an ideal. He is the truth. So much so that He does not just disclose truth, He dictates truth. Let's hearken back to what John began talking about. There was not things. Then He said, let there be things, and then there were things. You want to know how complete and thorough God's command of the truth is? He owns it in a proprietary sense. It's not just He says things that are true. What He says becomes truth. Truth is dictated 
by what He says and who He is. This was testified of in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Man didn't know what truth was. God says, I'll just let truth walk amongst you. And they said things like, no man ever spake like this man spake. Where did he get this power? What did they mean when they said that? Where did he get this authority? What did they mean when he said that? Well, the rabbis spent all their time sitting around, stroking their beards, pontificating about stupid questions. Like a lot of Baptists. Just sitting around arguing about a bunch of stupidity and nonsense. And they never gave a straight answer about anything. It was always, well, this rabbi wrote this. And, well, you know, this scribe said this. And, well, maybe it's this. And, well, maybe it's that. And then like a nuclear blast, here comes Jesus Christ walking amongst them, not asking questions, but giving answers. I mean, even as a 12-year-old boy sitting in the temple saying, what are you all talking about? Let me just give you the answer to these questions, these endless things that you're asking. And his entire life was characterized by this ideal of truth, not just in the things he said, but in truth being expressed in in a potent way, walking amongst humanity, in a way that, hey, the darkness didn't even know what to do with the light. Imagine a man born in blindness, and Christ did this for a man in John chapter number 9, a man that had been born blind, and Christ opened his eyes. When you described light to that man, he didn't even know what light was. If you described a river, he didn't know what a river was. If you, if you described a mountain, he didn't know what a mountain was. You could, you could with your words paint the most beautiful sunset, but he didn't even have the colors in his palette to interpret it. But here comes Jesus and he opens the eyes of this man. And now all of a sudden this man is seeing things that before he didn't even have the capacity to, to interpret. You know, the darkness has no capacity to receive light. What has to happen? It has to be replaced by light. And that's what Jesus did. The darkness didn't even know what to do with light. The world didn't even know what to do with truth. They just nailed Him to a cross because they didn't know how to receive it or what to do with it. His entire life. He revealed the identity of God and the integrity of God. Notice three truths. Not only He was robed in flesh. Notice number two. John says we received His fullness. Verse number 15. John, bear witness of Him. And cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. I challenge you. You ought to go read Galatians 3 when you get home. Because here, when John says this, this is not just him saying, Hey, this Jesus, this cousin of mine, he's a cool dude. You ought to listen to him. He's not just cool. He's cooler than I am. That's not what John's saying. John is representative of the prophets. John is representative of an old way of worship and an old way of knowing God. And he says when he points to Jesus Christ, there's been a way you've been knowing God and worshiping God. But this is a better way. This is a new way. And this way is preferred before me. And here's why. Because he was before me. Paul will describe this in Galatians chapter number 3 in regarding faith as being the condition and premise of our salvation and of our relationship with God. And he'll remind us that Abraham was justified by faith 400 years before the law was ever given. And he was saying that the law cannot disannul the promises of God. The law, it's funny, man. Mankind's all wrapped up in the law. you got people wanting to keep the law and worship the law and work the... I'm talking about Gentiles. You, you, hey, listen, hey, you say, hey, preacher, what about the Old Testament law? I, I, I want never under the law. Listen, my German, Scotch, Irish ancestors want never under the law. 
Uh, far back as ago, we've been Gentiles. Law never applied to us. And yet there's this movement today to want to put ourselves under the yoke of the law. That ain't nothing new, by the way. The book of Galatians, Paul's dealing with that same thing. A bunch of Gentiles sitting around pretending to be under the law. He said, what a bunch of nonsense. And he reminds them that that uh, salvation has always been predicated on faith and not the keeping of the law. And that the law, which was this slice of time and nothing more than that, cannot disannul the promises of God. John, when he came along, he, when he said this, he's preferred before me. He wasn't just saying him as a person. He was saying him as a pathway to God. He's saying this Messiah, this is better than the Old Testament law because it was before the Old Testament law. It's always been God's preferred way. John points to two things. Number one, the fullness of his gift. He says this, and of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. I love that, man. Not works for works. Not I'll work for you if you'll work for me. But grace for grace. In other words, God said, I'll make you a trade. Uh, my grace for your grace. We said, we ain't got no grace. He said, it's all right. I got grace enough for the both of us. That's all right. I got grace enough for the both, both stuff. You say, preacher, oh, I don't know if I believe that. Well, if you want a real explicit biblical interpretation, I think John's probably saying from the grace of his incarnation to the grace of his crucifixion. He's saying that him coming to us, we didn't deserve and him dying for us, we didn't deserve. But I'm just glad to know it ain't from works to works, because if it was, son, I couldn't work it out. But it's from grace to grace. And what did we receive? We received the fullness of his gift. The law could only ever give a man part of a concept of who God was. But Jesus Christ gave us all of who God is. The fullness of His gift, but then the fullness of His grace. He expands on it. I won't preach it, but verse 17, He says this, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He says, where, where, where are you getting what you need from? What could the law, what could Moses give you? Well, He could give you the law. He could show you where you were wrong. But only grace and truth could come by Jesus Christ. We see that we received His fullness. And then finally, and I'm done. I know you don't believe that, but it's true. Not only was He robed in flesh and we received His fullness, but notice finally, verse 18, John brings it right around. And he says, you know what this all means? He revealed the Father to us. No man hath seen God at any time, he says. No man had seen God at any time. You say, well, what about Moses? Well, Moses saw God's backside. But here I think is the greater point that John's making. No man has seen God the Father, nor has any man seen collectively the Godhead. When he says no man hath seen God at any time, he's not just reviewing the record book. He's saying, don't you realize that all throughout human history, when men saw God, they were seeing Christ. It's always been the case. Uh, he's the angel of the Lord all throughout the Old Testament. He has always been. He's the one that walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. He's the angel that stopped the hand of, of, of Abraham. He's the angel that stood in the way of Balaam's donkey. He's the fourth man in the fire. He is the angel that appeared uh, to Samson's uh, mother and, and father. He's the commander, the captain of the host of the Lord that stood on the hillside by Jericho all throughout the Old Testament. When the Bible says the word of the Lord appeared unto someone, he appeared unto someone. And he spoke to them. And all throughout the Old Testament, he is God. And when God manifested himself to mankind, it was always through the personage of, of Christ. 
When we come to the New Testament, we find this truth is expressed more fully. Two things that he mentions. Number one, the limitation of man's knowledge. No man has seen God at any time. Man can't just deduce or intuit his way to a knowledge of God. Why? Because whatever man wishes to say about God, if it's not rooted in Scripture... I want you to listen carefully. If anybody has an opinion about God that's not found in the Bible, it's worthless. If any man has an opinion about God that's not rooted in the Bible, it's worthless. Why? Because no man hath seen God at any time. We see the limitation of man's knowledge, but then he points to the declaration of God's nature. He says this, well, how can we know Him? How can we know Him? Here's how. The only begotten Son said, does He really know Him? Well, He's in the bosom of the Father. I don't guess anybody would know Him better than He would know Him. He's in the bosom of the Father, denoting what? That He knows His heart, that He knows His, his desires, His ambitions, His priorities. His, 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 uh, everything about him, his thoughts, which is in the bosom of the Father, here's what he hath done. He hath declared him. He hath declared him. What was he doing when he was walking amongst mankind? It was a revelation of who God is. It was that man who could not know God might look at Jesus Christ and say, that's who God is. That's who God is. wonder what God would say about this. Well, what did Jesus say about it? wonder what God would do about it. Well, what did Jesus do about it? Wonder what God wants. Well, what does Jesus want? Wonder what God's planning. Well, what's Jesus planning? Wonder how I can know Him. Well, I can tell you how you can know Him. You can know Him through Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, Preacher, I've enjoyed it. It's been good. I would have bought a ticket if you were selling them. But what do I do with all this? I'll tell you exactly what you do with it. There's not a person in this room that wouldn't say, I want to know God in a greater way. How can I do that, Preacher? How can I know God? Well, here's the good news. The Word has been made flesh. Not only in the sense that the Word has been made flesh, but you understand the inverse has to be true as well. The flesh then has been made the Word. In other words, we want to know who God is. We can know Him through His Word. They're the same in nature. Just as the living Word expressed God to a generation, the written Word expresses God to all generations. He said, Preacher, I want to know God more. This is how you can know Him. How often are you reading your Bible? It's easy to say we want to know Him. Can we back that up? Can we show that we do really want to know Him through the Word of God? You say, Preacher, I want to please God. Well, is your life in line with the Bible? Because you can know what God expects out of you. You say, Preacher, I I want God to be pleased with my life. Well, is there any area of your life that's not in line with this book? Because you don't have to speculate or wonder what God would think about it. You can know because the Word was made flesh, but also because this Word has been preserved inerrant for us, and we can read it and study it and know it. So here's what I charge and challenge you to this Christmas season. Get to know Him better. Preacher, why did He come? He came so that we might know God. Preacher, I want to celebrate Christmas. You're an old Grinch, preacher. You don't ever want to celebrate it. I want to celebrate it. I just want to celebrate it different than you want to celebrate it. I think the best way we can celebrate it, oh, go ahead, string the popcorn on the tree and buy all the gifts that nobody really wants in the first place and do all those things. That's fine. I don't care. That don't offend me, especially when you make me cookies. Amen? <laughs> that don't offend me. That don't bother me. But here's what I think you ought to do on top of that. I think, I think on top and beyond that, you ought to, in the real spirit of Christmas, you ought to say, you know, he came so that we might know God better. And you ought to purpose in your heart that this Christmas season... You're going to know him better. Let's bow together this morning as the musician comes to play. The altar's open.
It's time to make good on those things you and the Holy Ghost was talking about during this message when he's dealing with you about things, when he was convicting your heart and arresting your attention. Now's the time to respond to that in obedience to him. So find a place at this altar and let God let God complete that work that he began in your heart through the preaching today. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.